one of the unique things about Christianity is that compared to the other religions of the world and philosophies of the world is that, is that we are offered joy in, spart, in spite of circumstances. Uh, you know, I'm thankful for that as we read the news every week and, and, and see that the world can be very difficult. It can just be very demoralizing when we start looking at the world and all the things that are going on there. But, but there's joy in our faith. There's love and there's peace and, and there's wisdom. There are a lot of really wonderful, uh, blessed things that God offers to us. Um, but that doesn't mean that our spiritual lives aren't also very serious. And uh, in fact, God uses very serious language when he's talking about spirituality, when he's talking about our response to him. And the Lord talks about our spirituality in terms of life and death. Remember in the Garden of Eden, he said, the day you eat of this fruit, not things are going to get bad. He said, the day you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. And you're going to introduce death into your life. And that began a struggle between life and death that uh, in one sense uh, continues today, but in a, in a greater sense has been won by the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, a text we've referenced before in these studies, we read this, starting in verse 18, it says, See, I've set before you, the people who are receiving God's word, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Amos chapter 5 presents to us life and death once again. Uh, it opens with a lamentation, it says, um, which is a dirge, or a lamentation is a funeral song, a song that you sing when someone has died. It brings, this chapter brings many images of death to our minds, but it also repeats a certain phrase a number of times. It says, seek me and live. And so we see very clearly the stakes of life and death sort of juxtaposed as God speaks to his people. So here's what the Lord says, starting in verse 1. It says, Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen, she will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to quench it in Bethel, you who turn justice to wormwood, and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. He made the Pleiades and Orion, he turns the shadow of death into mourning, and makes the dark, uh, excuse me, makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, Though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore the prudent keep silent at that time, 
for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, uh, excuse me, so the Lord God will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall... Uh, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days and your offering. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikuth, your king, and Chiun, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. The great thing about Amos for us is, is not just the message that we receive, but as we've talked about before, also the example of the messenger. This is just a great guy. Uh, a great servant of the Lord. He really lived it. Because this right here is not a pleasant message to deliver to people. It's not an easy message to carry. Uh, I need to remind myself that he actually said this stuff to God's people in an effort to uh, save them from the coming Assyrian captivity. And, you know, in the end, the the nation didn't didn't do what God was asking them to do. They didn't take up the repentance that they were called to. But... Amos knew that the people weren't going to like the message that he was bringing. He says it right there in our text. He says, man, when, when people come and rebuke in the gate or when they speak uprightly, people hate it. And he says that. And so he knew that uh, people weren't going to like this message. And, and it wasn't a popular message at all, especially because the people of Israel seemed very spiritual. They were super successful, you know, money-wise. They, they were very religious and they were still carrying out their traditions, and they could interpret a lot of those things and say, well, look, see, the gods are showing favor to us. And even the God of Israel, his temple is here, and, and look how wealthy we are. And so obviously God's favor is on us. And then Amos comes along, and, and man, he, he brings a very different message to them. Uh, but Amos was being used by God to reveal their sin, and, and the revelation of sin is never a pleasant thing. It's never fun to be the person that has to go and say, hey, you know what? You're so selfish and greedy and proud that God can't tell the difference between you and an Amorite. You know, I mean, that's not something you want to say to an Israelite. But Amos was faithful. He was faithful to carry the message he had been given. He didn't hold back because he might lose some prominence in social circles. He didn't downplay God's message because it might make him seem like an outcast or a weirdo. He did what the Lord asked him to do, and he pursued God's calling on his life. He didn't delay it or avoid it. He pursued it. An interesting tidbit from this chapter specifically, you can learn that he also pursued God's word in his personal life. 
Commentators and scholars who know things about language will point out that verse 8 in our text is actually a reference to the book of Job and, and, and things that Job had written. And so scholars see correlations there that indicate that Amos was quite familiar with Job's book. And that's an interesting thing. And as we evaluate Amos the messenger, we should be inspired. The more that we learn about this guy and the more we see this guy in action, I think we should be inspired. Because as we've talked about before, Amos wasn't special in, the, in any sense, really. He wasn't a prophet, educationally or vocationally. He wasn't the son of a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He, he was just a guy who was willing. He was a shepherd who was willing to do what the Lord asked him to do. He was willing to pursue God. And that willingness has had an incalculable effect over the last 2,800 years. You know, this guy you know, was living his life. He was following after the Lord. He was pursuing God's word. God comes to him and he says, I want you to do something for me. He was willing to do it. And now 2,800 years later, countless millions have been blessed and ministered to because of that simple willingness. And really what he did was simple. It was plain. The Lord said, go and say this to these people. You know, not go and write volumes on systematic theology, not go and found, you know, a, a seminary or do something complex or difficult. He just says, just go and say this to people. And he did that. And for almost 3,000 years, you know, people have been ministered to because of that willingness. And the more we learn about this guy, the more I hope we should be able to identify with him. He was just like anyone else. He, he was just willing to be used by God, and he pursued God's word and God's calling on his life. And so he's a really stunning messenger for us. But next we come to the message itself. You know, week to week, I think we've seen that this old Jewish book it does have a lot for us as church-age believers as well. So much of what is said to God's people in this book is repeated to us in uh, places in the New Testament as well. Um, and as we read through this chapter, seeing some of the language and how the Lord sort of constructs the, the warning of the coming judgment, I, I can't help but be reminded of the Passover in Exodus. Um, how the Lord said, hey man, I'm going to judge what's going on in Egypt. I'm going to pass, uh, I'm going to institute... Um, the Passover there. Uh, there in verse 17 of our text, we see God talking about, he says, I'm going to pass through you. And uh, he wasn't, you know, and he was going to pass through uh, with death and judgment. He was going to destroy those who weren't turning to him for salvation. But what does he keep saying to everybody throughout the, our text? Turn to me and live. If you turn to me when I pass through, I'm not going to kill you. Turn to me and live. And so <clears throat> Uh, it feels a lot like Exodus chapter 12, and, and there God laid out his plan of coming judgment. He said that the people needed to remove leaven from their houses and sacrifice a choice lamb and then paint the blood on their doorposts as a sign of the fact that they had turned their hearts in trust and dependence on the Lord. You know, we're familiar with the Passover story and what happened there uh, in the final plague on Israel. And as the Lord passed through the camp, there was life for those who identified with him and death for those who did not. Now in Exodus, God had told his people, preparing for that moment, he said, I need you to turn from leaven. I need you to sweep all the leaven out of your house. And, and obviously, you know, there's a lot of talk about leaven and what that represents uh, throughout God's word. But then God instituted the Passover as an annual observance of what had happened. He said, okay, from here on out, this is the beginning of your year. And at the beginning of every year, you're going to institute this, this remembrance and you're going to sweep leaven out of your house and you're going to focus on determining to follow me, to turn yourselves toward me. That's going to be, be the beginning of every year. 
as they turned from leaven or from sin and toward God. Now, in our text, God is asking his people to turn from a number of things. He's, he's really asking them to t- turn to him. He says, seek me and you're going to live. Seek good, not evil. But he reveals their sin and he shows them that they need to turn from idolatry. They need to turn from uh, greed, from afflicting the poor, from taking bribes, turn from all of these sins and other things that we've talked about so that they might live and not die. And what I want to briefly look at a couple of the things that God highlighted so that we can be sure that we've swept them from our own lives uh, today. First and perhaps foremost, idolatry. You know, from cover to cover, uh, it seems that God's people will always struggle with setting up some sort of God in place of Jehovah. Rachel brought her father's household idols into her marriage with Jacob. The Israelites, pretty much anywhere they lived, they would pick up the you know, the gods and the idolatry of whoever their neighbors were. When they were in Egypt, they picked up the Egyptian gods. When they were in Canaan, they picked up the Canaanite gods. And, and, uh, and we see it happening so often in the Bible because as human beings, we have a propensity to worship things which aren't the Lord. That's why the Lord, over and over again, he says, hey, you're going to worship me. Don't worship other gods. And every one of us is going to struggle with this on some level, the temptation in some way to place something uh, in the position that only God deserves. Now, God commands that our worship be solely and purposefully reserved for him. The Bible has a bunch of different words that we render as worship in English. You know, this is one of those situations where we have one word in the Old and New Testament just says worship, but there's a bunch of different words in Hebrew and in Greek that, you know, kind of... Uh, expound upon that idea or that topic. Obviously, the one we most think of is, is the idea of bowing down in submission before a person or before a statue or an object or something. And certainly, you know, we think of, you, you, we understand the act of pagan idolatry. But I think that we all know that worship extends to more than just statues and prostration. Uh, you know, other definitions of worship from the Bible are those things which we adore, those things which we give our affection to, uh, those things which we present ourselves before to find satisfaction and, and fulfillment. These are all areas in which idolatry can creep up into our lives, even though we're not really super pagan in our culture. There's not a lot of paganism compared to other cultures that you go to where paganism still is alive and well. People go and bow down at shrines and, you know, cut themselves and do things that we think, man, that's kind of barbaric and pagan. We don't really have that in our culture, but we certainly have uh, an incredible amount of idolatry in our culture uh, despite that. And since God has gone to such great lengths to warn us, we should take very seriously our propensity to put some God, some pursuit, some supply of pleasure before the Lord who made us and saved us. God, above all other things, wants exclusivity. Uh, some of us waited year after year for I, AT&T's iPhone exclusivity to end. And you know, <laughs> now that phone is available on a variety of carriers, and we're thankful for that. But God demands exclusivity. He, he, he's, not, he's not into open relationships with us. And so he commands his people to turn from idolatry and to himself. Now next we see, again, a lot of talk about the oppression of and exploitation of the poor. God's people had moved away from caring for those who were impoverished, and they had figured out ways to capitalize off of them. They added burdens to the poor. They stripped away what little the poor had, and they took and took and took as their greed grew and grew. And here, as we see this language that God spoke 
uh, through Amos, his prophet, we see that the Lord cares very deeply about the poor in our society. And that's the deal. Now listen, the Lord is not a communist. That's obvious from the Bible. However, he's not a capitalist either, and that's something that we need to deal with. God is an individualist in the sense that he comes to us individually. And he says, okay, what's in your hand right now? Is it ten talents? Is it five talents? Is it one talent? Is it a bag of gold? Is it a bag of rice? What's in your hand? Whether you're a Chinese believer, you know, who has to live in the underground church, or whether you're, you know, an American believer that perhaps has a great deal more affluence. And he says, what are you doing with what you have? What are you doing with what I've given you? We talked about this on Sunday with Abraham. We talked about the idea of hospitality. Hospitality isn't just baking a bunch of food. It's taking what you have and being willing to sacrifice in order to bless someone else. Because relationally speaking, God gave everything to me. He gave everything to us. He gave it all. He did not withhold life. He did not withhold truth. He did not withhold grace. He did not withhold forgiveness. He did not withhold his own son, the Bible says. And since he did not withhold those things from us, he's very interested in how we give to or withhold from others. 1 John 3, 14 and 15 says this, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so the Bible says to us that if the life of Jesus is within me as an individual, shouldn't I treat people the way Jesus has treated me, who withheld nothing from me, who gave everything for me? the way he loved me and and forgave me and sacrificed himself to help me. That seems to be the idea that Jesus had in mind. You know, when they came and said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything that you are, with everything. And then he says, the second second is like it, meaning that they are of the same, you know, making. They are equal together. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if the life of Christ is within me, then the way I give to others should mimic the way God has given to me. Now, the third sin God was calling his people to turn from was their desire for self-sufficiency. And this is a big one, I think, because who doesn't want to be a self-made man? And that's something we prize very much in our culture. But this idea has been repeated in Amos. The people had built all this wealth for themselves, all these houses, all these fortresses, and God was coming in judgment. He said, you know, you guys are in sin and you think you have built up all this strength and you think you're so self-sufficient, but when I come through, all of that's going to be knocked down. All of that's going to be wiped out. The ratio that the Lord used in our passage is 90%. He says, you know what? When I come through, nine out of 10 of your people are going to be dead. You're not going to survive this. It's often quoted and ascribed to many teachers, but it's been said that if the Holy Spirit was removed from the church tomorrow, perhaps 90% of the work would continue unchanged. And obviously that's a generalization, but I think it shines a light into how sufficient, self-sufficient we try to be, even in our faith. And what God wants is dependence. God doesn't help those who help themselves. Mr. Franklin had it wrong. God helps those who, are, who throw themselves at his mercy and who, who fall on him in dependence and, and, in, uh, and in supplication. He wants us to be utterly and unashamedly dependent on him to live and move and have our being. That's what the scripture says. Because because that which is done in the flesh is going to burn. It can't last. It's not eternal. Fourth, God was asking his people to turn away from their sin of neglecting righteousness. 
You see this talked about in verses 7 and 24. He said, you know what? You guys have laid down righteousness, and I want you to put it back on. I want you to let righteousness flow out of your lives once again. The same principle is explained to us in the New Testament. As believers, God has given us his righteousness, but we've got to put it on. We've got to walk in righteousness. We've got to let the mind of Christ control our thinking. His righteousness with all its love and all its discernment and all its wisdom and all its gifts has to be put on daily if we want to experience its benefits. And so God was lamenting over Israel. He was singing their funeral song. He looked at his people and he said, you guys are dead. You guys are dead. And I'm going to sing a, a lament about that. Your love for me is dead. Your love for others is dead. Your righteousness is dead. Our relationship is dead, he said. Kind of reminds me of Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. He said, you guys don't love me anymore, and we need to deal with that. Uh, but like Ephesus and like Amos, all of these problems and all of these sins and all of these missteps are solved simply by turning to Jesus. That's what our text says, and that's what the whole of Scripture says. Not by rituals or programs or complex acts. We find life by seeking God, by turning to Jesus, who is life. Now remember, God is all about resurrection. He wants to bring life to that which is dead. Not just for eternity after physical death, but resurrection kicks in on this side of eternity as well. He's about resurrection right now because resurrection isn't just about immortality in heaven. It also brings power on the earth. God will bring back that which was dead. And even when he looks at the Israelites and he says, man, you guys are dead. I'm singing your funeral song right now. He follows that up with a chance for resurrection. He says, hey, turn to me and live. You guys are dead right now. Turn to me and live and I'll bring resurrection and my power and my life into you once again. And this is true in our own lives. If we have left our first love for the Lord in some way, if some area of righteousness or godliness has in, our, in a sense died in our day-to-day -day activities, then God is ready right now and he's willing to bring it back to life. Now, like I said, the point of Christianity isn't just a list of things that we do. Uh, the Lord in this text says he hates, he despises religion without relationship. But as James and John point out in their epistles, if we are alive in Christ, then his life is going to spill out of the things that we do. That's the power of the resurrection. The life of Christ isn't just an immortal future, but it's a power and a mission in this life as well. And so we can gauge our spiritual vitality by evaluating where we're at with purging idolatry, where we're at with sacrificially giving to the poor, where we're at with putting on righteousness every day. Those things help us measure spiritual vitality. And that's what God is calling us to. Because those are the things the Lord says will be a part of the life that he's giving to us. And so the Lord wants to be wants us to be in love with him and to be dependent on him and be in pursuit of him so that we can live the incredible life he wants us to live. And so using God's word, seek God and live as he adds all these things to you far and above what we could ask or imagine for ourselves. Amen? Amen. All right.